It's go time. Okie Tire, Labor Day weekend is in the books, and there is a lot of news that came out of the weekend, so let's get to it. Welcome, everyone, to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Glad you're back with us as we get down to the stretch run in the Canadian Football League here in 2023. First and foremost, I guess, we go back to Labor Day Sunday, Rough Riders versus the Blue Bombers. A great game, great finish. But one incident that comes out of it has got a lot of people talking. It sure does. And the, the incident we're talking about is Pete Robertson's late hit headbutt on Zach Kolaris late in the fourth quarter. Lucky for Pete Robertson, it did not cost the Riders the win, but it very well could have. Pete Robertson on the play. This is a second down. has just finished. A pass has been incomplete into the end zone. Zach Kolaris is turning to his right. He doesn't appear to be looking or saying anything. And Pete Robertson, in maybe just a, a moment of excitement or whatever the case may be, steps forward and gives a headbutt to the grill of his mask. Kolaris immediately goes down. Micah Johnson, who's beside Robertson when this happens from the Rough Riders, he's almost, you can read his language, like, what are you doing? Uh, Robertson steps away. And one other thing that we've got to get to in all of this before we talk about the sanctioning, Brady Oliveira, I thought, did a really smart thing. Chris Kolonkowski of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers is ready to go after Robertson. Brady Oliveira recognizing the situation that they're going to get a first down because of the penalty, immediately steps in the way and holds back his offensive line as best he can to keep them from taking an unnecessary foul themselves in retaliation for what happened. Brilliant move by him because then the only foul on the play is the 15-yard call against the Rough Riders, which carries with it an automatic first down on a roughing. It's the same in the NFL. Winnipeg gets the ball back. Now they're half the distance because they're so close to the goal. Something that I'd love to see ended is that half-the-distance business. And then they do score on the consequent play. Robertson gets a one-game suspension on Monday morning from the Canadian Football League. A lot of people felt very happy about that. A, it was swift. B, the league meted out what they felt was an appropriate response to what happened. Your thoughts? A couple of things that I might get on a soapbox here a little bit uh, with this one. As I've seen a lot of social media from Riders fans, from Bombers fans, going back and forth on this whole situation, even some media personalities getting involved. I've been to over 10 Labor Day games, more Banjo Bulls than that, even before Troy Westwood's comments named the Banjo Bull. So going way back. Emotions run high in this Labor Day game for the players, the coaches, the fans, everybody involved. It's, it's a very, very high energy we saw emotional highs and lows for both teams in this game alone, let alone every year when this game happens. I've seen Bomber fans screaming for a harsher punishment for Pete Robertson than the one-game suspension. If you're one of those people, you need to stop. I think a one-game suspension for this is appropriate. Yes, he probably could have and should have been disqualified from that game itself. We're in the dying minutes of it, so realistically losing his opportunity to play in this next game is a bigger hit to him and his team on a one game penalty. I've also seen rider fans trying to compare this hit to the one that Cam Lawson laid on Jake Dolagala in the first quarter of the game in which he was flagged for roughing the passer. If you're one of these people saying that these are the same type of play, you need to stop. Lawson's hit on Dolagala was in game action. Yes, it was a high hit. He caught him with his helmet. He was penalized the 15 yards. That's the appropriate penalty for that play. We see probably every team in the CFL has been flagged for roughing the passer this year on a similar hit to the one that Lawson laid out on Dolagala. That's a football play. What Pete Robertson did was after the whistle, away from the action, and it was a malicious and, and probably the most selfish penalty that I have seen 
taken this year. I feel that both of the penalties meted out in these situations are appropriate to what they should have been. The bigger question to me is how the on-field officials missed the headbutt from Robertson on Caleros. That is a great question. You and I both were in stadium. We were both as well persons that did not see what happened. I remember turning to you and saying, Calaris has gone down. I wonder what happened. But I didn't put two and two together that anything else had happened. It wasn't until my wife, who's just been fantastic, uh, she's such a sweetheart. I come home and there's a snack waiting for me, a three and a half hour drive from Regina midnight, and she's waiting up for me. It's just wonderful. Texts me and says, do you know what happened? And I, no, it's not going to be replayed apparently on the big screen at the field either from what we later find out as we're watching. She tells me that TSN has shown that Robertson has headbutted Calaris, and I'm just befuddled. What for? And it's not until I get home, she's got the TV actually queued just before the moment that this all begins, so I get to see it for myself. And yes, you look at this and you go, what was he thinking? Now, it just looks like it was, if you want to call it an adrenaline rush, whatever the case may be, but why he did it, I don't know. Pete Robertson is not that guy, though. He's not a guy that's had a reputation of doing anything like this. It seems so out of character for him. And this is where I just don't understand what was going through his mind. Everybody has a brain fart every once in a while. Apparently, that was his. On field, Ben Major and the rest of the crew, just like us, were looking in the end zone, checking to see if that ball had been caught, everything like that. The play had moved down the field. This happens in, amongst a bunch of players and in behind the pack where the, the officials happen to be standing on the other side. That's probably why they missed it. This gets into the question of the booth. We talked, I talked a lot about subjective calls with the booth. The booth this time in this circumstance has to be involved. The play is out. The booth can get involved as far as I'm concerned because you've got to watch for stuff like this happening around the field. That I, I find fine. I even said it last week, if there's a brawl, a melee, the booth definitely has to be involved. I just don't like them getting involved in pass interference, whether a guy was stopped, stuff like that. The, this one, you could tell when Ben Major made the announcement, he was f almost fuming. Now, whether that was because he was told what would happen and it really bothered him, or that he missed it and really bothered him, who knows. But he was not going to listen to the crowd on this one. He wasn't. And unfortunately, the in-stadium replays at Mosaic seem to consistently not show those, those kind of controversial calls. And all that really does is it gets the, the fans in the stadium more riled up and, and more confused. And because this penalty happened so much away from and after the play, a lot of those 30 plus thousand fans missed it too. And all they're doing is now they're reacting to the booth making a call. It, it was a disservice to not show what happened. So people, the, the the cooler heads in the stadium, at least going, oh, okay, well, that deserves a penalty. And, and we're not seeing that until after, as I said, you've got media personalities trying to defend it and shrug it off as no big deal. I will defend Pete Robertson. You're right. He does not have the reputation of a dirty player who does this time and again. Those guys all seem to play for the Ticats now. Um, and Robertson is a rough rider. So he has admitted after the game that it was a selfish and, and stupid play as well. He seems to have accepted his fate in this situation. Unfortunately, what it has done is it has taken away from what should be a great team victory for the Rough Riders. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Jake Dolagala had a fantastic game as the third string quarterback leading that team to a huge win on Labor Day. But we, like many others, are leading with the headbutt story. It is unfortunately one of the things that has to happen when such an event occurs. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody seems to want to hear an opinion. It was shocking to me to see that when I got home and my reaction once I got the text from her was the same what was he thinking why do that 
so many people in our section didn't know, and I relayed the message to them, and you could tell that people went, oh my. The stadium itself, I don't understand what their thinking is. They tend to show when the Rough Riders are egregious, but they don't tend to show when the Rough Riders do something to the opposition. In this circumstance, were they appropriate in not showing it, or were they not? That's another debate for another day. I was surprised myself that I couldn't see a replay, at least to give me some context as to what was going on. But they made their decision based on whatever criteria they have. I would agree with you. It would have helped for the cooler heads in the stadium. They would have seen what happened and went, oh, that's why. Yeah, I, I just think it was a bit of a misservice to not give everybody the opportunity to see for themselves. Had the Bombers come back and, and held on to win that game, this would be a huge talking point for the riders as to what happens next with Robertson. I, I think the fact that the riders managed to win this game alleviates a lot of that. If he takes the one game suspension in stride and moves on from it, a, a loss would have changed that narrative quite a bit. And we saw Craig Dickinson after the game, his first reaction was immediately to defend Pete Robertson and then say, well, I didn't actually see what happened. And I, I'm not sure that he's walked any of that back yet or not. He seemed to continue pursuing his opinion that the Bombers do a lot to try to draw these penalties from other players. It didn't look like Zach Claris had done anything to, to warrant that. Craig Dickinson struggles with these moments at the best of times. When we think back to last year and Garrett Marino and what he did to Jeremiah Mazzoli on that same field, Dickinson struggled mightily trying to figure his way through that. So the fact that he defended, if you want to call it that, Robertson doesn't really surprise me. At times you have to be bigger than the situation and you have to get the facts straight and you have to come out in front and say, hey, that's not what we're about. For whatever reason, Dickinson tends to shy away from that. That's his prerogative, I guess. Uh, I wonder what Jason Shivers thinks of all of this. That's one of his defensive crew that's out there doing this. And this is now two years in a row where we've seen one of the front four do something egregious. It does take away from the game. It certainly will be a discussion point, but I think it's in parallel with what happened in the game as well. It's not necessarily one trumps the other. It's each has their own merit in terms of a talking point. Absolutely. And just to get back to, to coach Dickinson briefly, there's a way to stand behind your player and support them without blindly defending before you even know the full situation. And even afterwards, I think it's an opportunity for, for Craig Dickinson as the coach to say, yes, Pete Robertson made a, a terrible error in judgment. We support him and we know that he'll grow from this and, and be a better player for it, as opposed to just immediately saying, oh, it wasn't that bad. The, the, the fact that, that he tried to, to lessen the situation by saying it's not that bad of, of a penalty or that the Bombers did something to draw it just doesn't show that strong leadership that I would expect to see from a head coach. It's a closing ranks mentality that we see far too often in sport. And as I say, sometimes you've got to get bigger than the story and actually stand up for something that you believe is right as opposed to you believe is necessary. The other thing that came out of this, and this has not been talked about so much, Claris drops to the ground when he gets hit. Spotter says, you've got to go off for three plays. TSN catches that, Kolaris is fuming on the sideline, wants to get back into the game, but he has to sit out three plays. In the post game, Kolaris fires one at the CFL saying they don't do enough to protect quarterbacks. Well, I don't know how you can play this because the CFL can't predict what Robertson's going to do, but they can help you if you've been hit. And that's what they tried to do in that situation. I absolutely see your your point on this one. I think more what he was getting to was A, the fact that it wasn't flagged on the field. B, two weeks ago, he got hit late 
in the game against the Edmonton Elks, which knocked him out of that game and the next one. So he's he's got some points there in where he feels there should have been more penalty at the time of the incidents than there has been. This isn't the first time that Zach Claris has been pulled out for player safety measures. We saw that last season as well, where he took a hard shot. Both of them were at very crucial times in the game. And the fact that the booth is making those calls shows to that side of things that they are committed to player safety. There's They're looking at it going, it doesn't matter if there's one minute left in the game or an entire half. If we see something that we feel needs to be addressed for concussion protocol, player safety, whatever the case is, and we're pulling you off the field, that's what we're going to do. So from that perspective, it was a good call by the CFL. There is some speculation that Calaris maybe embellished the the hit a little bit. And I, I can't speak to that. It's just some of the things that I have have heard from from other people as well. And so maybe he's a little bit mad at himself that his embellishment caused him to get pulled from the game. The CFL has passed the suspension. And it was very important, I felt, that the league suspend Robertson. Now that the league, somebody external to both teams has stepped in and said, this is not acceptable, he does get a paycheck cut for that. It will be, I think, a still a very intense feel at IG Field, but it won't be as intense given that Robertson isn't out there. And the best thing that the league did was that they acted quickly. We often see suspensions, fines, extra punishments issued by the league on about a Wednesday. The fact that they, even on a holiday Monday, made that announcement less than 24 hours after the game shows their appreciation for the entirety of the situation as well. They didn't let it fester and boil for an extra few days leading up to the rematch game this coming Saturday. They got in in front of it immediately, even before the other two games of the weekend were played and said, this is the penalty that we are administering in this situation. Now, I do agree with Kolaris, and it's something that we talked about in the NFL rule in terms of tackling a quarterback. And one of the things that we pointed out was the pancaking side of it. And that's what was the call earlier in the game. And I think the CFL has to do more for that. That's, I think, what happened so much in that Edmonton game where Calaris is almost to the ground and he still gets hit. Why? Maybe, just maybe, we have to look to U-sport. In U-sport, if you have the football and you go to ground, you drop a knee, an elbow, or whatever that contacts the ground while you have possession, that's it. You cannot advance the ball any further. Maybe the pro game needs to look at that because then would eliminate some of this extra cheap shotting that goes on as a guy is laying on the ground. I I agree with you. I think the only situations where we really see that in the CFL is if a team is conceding a a rouge on a kick or in the dying seconds or dying minutes of a game where a team is trying to stop the clock, they can voluntarily give themselves up and it will be whistled down. But more often than not, a diving player, a player that, trips over their own feet and hits the ground is very vulnerable to that extra shot. And a lot of defensive players are getting a lot better at just doing the, the touch. We saw Micah Awe later on the weekend having an opportunity with a, with a down player and he just kind of jumped over him and touched him on his way by. How many times over the years have we seen a guy take that shot and dive in there and, and lay one on him? You can't legislate stupidity out of something, but you can penalize it. And over time, that is going to give pause to coaches, to teammates saying, watch out, you can't do this anymore because it's going to cost us dearly. And that's the way you get sanctions working in your behalf if you're the league to make sure that less of this happens. You'll never be able to stamp it out but at least you can weed out as much as you can. Second down. Okay, Tyre, Labor Day weekend first game was the BC Lions in Montreal to take on the Alouettes on Saturday night. BC with a nine-point win, 34-25. Turned out to be a very interesting game. If you're an Alouettes fan, how many questions do you have about the team under the 
quarterbacking leadership of Cody Fajardo after this one? I think you have to begin questioning it. We saw Fajardo injured earlier this season and Caleb Evans came in and ran that offense quite effectively. Now, looking at the the stat line for Fajardo, he did have over 300 yards passing, 22 for 35 for 308 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, 63% completion rate, but again, not moving the ball effectively and not scoring the points that they need. An improvement over the last couple of games we've seen from Fajardo when he failed to lead the team to touchdowns at all, but we're not seeing enough, in my opinion, to warrant him being the number one guy for the rest of the season. They may need to start looking at giving Caleb Evans a shot here or there to see what he can do. 308 yards is stellar, but when you have the game on the line and you throw two ill-advised passes one to each corner of the end zone on successive drives and have double coverage in each case and get intercepted in both cases. The first one coming after a fake punt that was taken down the field to set them up, he immediately throws an interception in the end zone. Jason Moss had a long conversation with him and it was animated after that. And yet in the final minute, he does the same thing. He puts another ball into the other corner And TJ Lee does a fantastic job of catching the ball. Amazing reaction to it, but it doesn't matter. It's another interception and the drive is snuffed. I have to correct myself. I said he had two touchdowns, one interception. I got that backwards. Thank you, Don. He had two interceptions, one touchdown. They are backwards on the stat page that we look at. (laughs) Generally, you see touchdowns first and then interceptions. My, My bad for not reading clearly and remembering clearly, but... The inability to turn those opportunities into touchdowns and instead leading to interceptions cost the Montreal Alouettes this game. BC played a great game. We're not, I'm not taking away from them and saying that they would have lost or, or should have lost had those mistakes not happened, but you have to take charge and convert those to touchdowns or at least protect the ball and get a field goal out of the situation instead of throwing those those end zone picks. It's kind of an all or nothing approach when you get within 25 yards of the goal line. This was something that Vernon Adams, when he was in Montreal, he was guilty of as well, that you immediately try to hit the long route to the deep corner of the end zone so that you score quickly. You don't need to. The Alouettes were not in a dire situation, especially on the first Uh, After the fake punt, they did not need to score the very next play. They could have got a couple of completions and and even had Stanback run it in. Uh, William Stanback, let's give a shout out to him. What a great night he had for the Alouettes. And I wonder if he kind of extended his career there because he had been struggling up until that night and he came up big. He did. We've seen his numbers dropped substantially at the start of this year. He missed a big chunk of 2022 with injury. Eight carries for 102 yards, so a 12.8 yards per carry average with a 69-yarder in there with a and a touchdown scored. So uh, a great night for him. He's a player that even two seasons ago I thought was one of the top two or three running backs in the league drastic drop off so great to see him bounce back with this one the last couple of weeks he's slowly started to creep back up and really showed it this week that he is still an elite player when given the opportunity now for vernon adams jr emotional night coming back to montreal a team that he'd been with quite a bit for the previous few years 21 of 33 he went 306 yards but the difference between him and fajardo three touchdown passes Two of them to Alexander Hollins that were key to the Lions. And even though the Lions went down in this game, they settled down and got the lead back and their defense hung in as it does. Montreal, again, an inability to beat the teams with a better record than them in the standings. Yeah, all of their losses so far this season have come against BC, Toronto, and Winnipeg. So they've really got themselves kind of stuck in that next tier 
not sure where they belong. And and some big games coming up for them are going to be against teams like the Rough Riders, teams like Hamilton, who's now won a couple of games, and, and really see how that plays out if they're still capable of beating those teams or if they're going to slip a little bit further down the hierarchy. We move to Sunday and the Labor Day Classic in Regina as the Blue Bombers and the Rough Riders go toe-to-toe again, 32-30 to in overtime. What a football game that was. Aside from what we just talked about in first down, it had everything else you would want in a game. And my goodness, was it exciting right down to the overtime. It was. I, I found the first half a little bit streaky and and not really a cohesive, exciting half. Other than the first play of the game where Brett Lothar comes out with an onside kick and, and the riders immediately go on offense. I, that was a, a great call. I don't know if it was Lothar seeing something and calling it himself or if it was a game plan going in, but uh, a great way I just kind of turned to you and, and just said, it's a Labor Day game. Here we go. And that second half and overtime was as exciting of football as you will see. It's the 58th time that these two teams have met on Labor Day. Saskatchewan leads the series 38-21. to 21, And this is the 33rd time that a game on Labor Day Sunday has been decided in the last three minutes or, in this case, overtime. Now, Saskatchewan had... A slow start, as you mentioned, so did Winnipeg. They picked it up in the second quarter. Both teams started to get a touchdown. Third quarter was a little bit quiet, and then the fourth quarter, they just went back and forth. And it takes a last-minute field goal for the Rough Riders to tie the game. One question I have for you, twice in this football game, Winnipeg gives up single points. One where they had a no-yards penalty. They could have taken the penalty. They would have not had the ball at the 40 they, I think they would have had it at the 25, but not given up the point. Instead, they do a second chance. They give up the single again. That puts the Riders into a situation where a field goal ties in the final minute. Interesting calls. I I have heard it was the 30-yard line. I've heard it was the 25-yard line. I'm not 100% sure where they would have started had they taken the no-yards penalty and and not given up the single. At the time of the game when that one occurred, I'm kind of fine with either call. I probably would have not given up the extra point myself. Hindsight is 2020. The second single that they gave up that brought the Rough Riders to within three, I believe was partially on a misplay by the kick returner. Uh, unfortunately for the Bombers, Jamal Parker and Craig McRae are not Janarian Grant. He did kind of let the ball bounce. Probably could have. I mean, it got it got past him. It, it went over his head. And in both circumstances, he had his back to the team that was charging down to cover it. He was wanting that ball to go into the end zone. He got what he wanted. I, I just don't understand. Was that a coach instruction or was that a you go back to your U.S. days where you get the touchback if you let the ball go in the end zone. Well, this is, this is what I'm saying is is it's like glaringly obvious that Janarian Grant has missed on that kick return team. That one was was the key. We've seen the Bombers win by other teams making critical errors on conceding single points. This one is a situation where they maybe let one get away by conceding the single. Zach Kolaris finishes with 13 of 26 for 279. An interception almost right at the beginning of the game but two touchdown passes. One of the comments that I heard about Claris's play is that he only completed five passes midway through the third quarter. He did. I think it was four completions at halftime, one completion in the first half of the third quarter, and then started to do Zach Claris things and, and move the ball, throw some touchdowns. We had a game last season where the Bombers won with him completing, I believe, nine passes seven passes it was a ridiculously low number and if we were in that situation again where he got them back into the game you have to look at the total yards that that he put forward so not a bad total but a really slow start and other than the one game against the bc lions you could say that that's one of the weaknesses that the bombers have had this year is an inability to get that quick start on the other side and i my phone was lighting up with people talking about how Jake Dolagala had ice in his veins. 
22 of 39 for two, 326 yards, but no touchdowns, no interceptions. One of the things that drives me nuts about quarterback efficiency ratings is that they base touchdown passes as part of the calculation, which I think is just bogus. What difference does it make if you throw a touchdown pass to tell me that you're a better passer than the other guy? The ratings, Zach Kolaris with two touchdown passes and interception was 98.1 on 13 completions, 22 completions for Dolagala, nothing on the stat line otherwise, and he's 83.9. So he's lesser in the scoring ranking because of what? He didn't throw a touchdown pass? What difference does it make? I, I guess it does show efficiency, but at the same time, you could get your team down to the one-yard line on every possession, and then your backup comes in, poaches all of those fantasy points, and falls into the end zone, gets you your touchdowns. It's a it's an algorithm and a formula that I'll never completely understand. I, I don't often look at QB efficiencies as my determination of who had a better game. We saw great plays from both quarterbacks. We saw some inconsistent play from both quarterbacks. One thing I will say about Jake Dolagella, I, I agree he was very calm and looked like a veteran in there. He didn't have really any kind of panic. He didn't make any senseless plays. He protected the ball really well. He under the circumstances, perform better than I think most would have expected. It's a different environment for our American friends. Labor Day is massive in Canada in terms of its intensity, the crowd excitement. For anybody coming into that for the first time, that's a lot to ask them to make sure that you stay within yourself. Dolagala, for the most part, did. You could tell he was a little bit nervous because there was a lot of passes that went way over the receivers' heads. Let's give some credit to Jamal Morrow, who had an all-round day, nine rushing attempts for 37 yards, but he also had five, or check that, four receptions for 76 yards, and he almost scored the go-ahead touchdown with 50 seconds to go. One thing I thought really hurt the Blue Bombers was a couple of their defensive backs, namely Demario Houston and Winston Rose, were really looking to ball hawk and undercut some routes, and they got torched for them. We saw the riders deep in their own end on a second down play. Demario Houston tried to undercut one, and it led to a 37-yard completion to Mitchell Pickton. It was really only about a three- or four-yard throw, but that undercut got him lit up, and it was a long time before his support managed to track Pickton down. Unnecessary roughness penalties ruled the day in this football game. Ten were called, three against the Blue Bombers, seven against the Rough Riders. Just shows you how much intensity is involved in this rivalry. Of course, they've got the back-to-back coming up. Who knows what will be happening in Winnipeg when it comes to that. We've seen incidents in Winnipeg, namely Andrew Harris being involved in ripping a helmet off a player in the Banjo Bowl. And let's give Jackson Ford some credit on the final play of the game, where just the moment before Zach Kolaris had finally looked like the Zach Kolaris of old, and hit Kenny Lawler on a deep route to tie the game in overtime. But of course, Saskatchewan had made their two-point convert. And by rule in the CFL, you ha- if you score a touchdown in overtime, you have to go for two. They're trying to get the games wrapped up as quickly as possible. And Saskatchewan surprised, I think, Kolaris and came with a safety blitz. Jackson Ford comes around the edge and just gets a hand on that football. It wobbles away. And the Rough Riders win the game 32-30 based on that play alone. And for Jackson Ford, who came in midway through the game, he really had a stellar moment. He did. It's it's great to see players like that get the uh, get the recognition. It was also interesting in overtime, the Rough Riders methodically came down the field and scored the touchdown. Winnipeg gets the ball on the 35, one play, boom, Claris to Kenny Lawler in the back of the end zone. Kind of shows the the quick strike ability that Winnipeg does have. Unfortunately, both Claris and Dolagala struggled on the deep balls in this game. Dolagala had a tendency to overthrow. Claris had a tendency to underthrow. The offensive coordinators continued to try those deep passes. I think that is what led to some of the lower completion percentages you see from both those quarterbacks, but they certainly took their chances on the deep routes. Nick Dembski, who has played on both sides, 
in Labor Day matchups, five receptions for 118 yards. He had a, an amazing night. Dalton Schoen, who took a beating by the Rough Riders, three catches on six targets for 68 yards. Tevin Jones was the leader for the Rough Riders with five catches for 96. But you look at the rider stats and they're spread out all over the place. The one thing that Dalagala did was he moved the ball around to different receivers. You couldn't really key on anybody. That was great play by him. You see a tendency sometimes with these younger quarterbacks, they find the one guy that they've been most comfortable with and they go to him again and again and again. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But what we saw from Jake was his ability to spread the field and look at different targets all throughout the game. The early game on Monday saw the Toronto Argonauts go into Hamilton to take on the Tiger Cats. Pretty big crowd there to watch, but it's the Argonauts that spoil the party, 41-28 to over Hamilton. Tiger Cats were caught off guard by how tenacious the Argonaut attack was in the first quarter. Toronto leading 17 to nothing before 15 minutes were up. The attendance was 25,381, which is the largest crowd in Tim Hortons field since it opened. Great to see that kind of support on the Labor Day weekend. Mr. Money, Chad Kelly, now the highest paid player in the CFL, came out and delivered on this Labor Day game. As you said, a, a really quick start for the Argonauts. Hamilton got 17 points down before they really knew what hit them. And it was a long road back to try to get back into this one. And they just couldn't pull it out. Toronto had a great game throughout and, and really dominated this one. Kelly with pedestrian numbers for him, 15 to 23 for 201 yards, two interceptions, two touchdown passes. Taylor Powell went the distance for Hamilton, 30 of 42 for 296, an INT and three touchdowns. Unfortunately for Taylor, he had been on the winning side every time he'd thrown a touchdown pass in previous games this season. Didn't work out so well. And a couple of those touchdown passes were late in the game when the Ticats were trying to rally. Toronto never looked threatened in this football game. They didn't. And you, you say pedestrian numbers for Chad Kelly, but this is kind of what he has done this season. He hasn't had a lot of games where he's threatened to put up 400 yards. He's completing somewhere between 15 and 20, 22 passes. He's getting the job done. He's also had a very calming presence for this Toronto Argonauts team. Let's look at the other quarterback for the Toronto Argonauts, AJ Ouellette. One for one for a 26-yard touchdown and a perfect 158.3 QB efficiency rating. There's there's your rating, Don. A perfect score for AJ Ouellette. And just illustrates my point even further. <laughs> he found Dijon Brissette in the end zone. Some people were questioning why the Argos would show that late in the game, especially when they've got the game in hand. But I don't argue with it because one of the things you want to do is have defenses guessing. And now don't you think that every time A.J. Ouellette rolls to his right that there's a thought in these defenders' heads that he may just throw it over our heads and maybe that'll create running lanes for him? It might. I don't mind the call at all. And one thing I've always loved about Labor Day weekend in the CFL is you often see some unorthodox or trick plays or things that you don't normally anticipate. So we had had two non-quarterbacks throw touchdowns this weekend. We had a, a start of a game with an onside kick. You see a little bit of everything on Labor Day. We finish in Calgary with the Stampeders and the Elks wrapping things up in McMahon Stadium. A decent crowd there. I think it got hurt by the fact that there was smoke in the area and that cut down the numbers just a little bit. The two teams have, have been meeting in Labor Day games since 1949 when the Edmonton franchise rejoined the CFL or CRU at that time. And they were th each at 30 wins and a tie going into this football game. So this was the rubber match. And the Stampeders, with a furious rally in the fourth quarter, come away winners. 35-31 when Calgary scores a touchdown in the final minute of the game. 22 points in the fourth quarter to pull this one out. Edmonton looked like they had this game in hand. They led 18-10 at the half, put up another 10 points to three in the third quarter. 
Jake Mayer, this was probably one of his best performances. He really led that Calgary Stampeders attack to get them back into this game, pull out the win. On the other side, I'm tuning in every week that Trey Ford is a starting quarterback in the CFL because he puts on a show, not only with his arm, but with his legs. He turned a potential 20-yard loss into about a 30-yard gain. I think he ran for over 80 yards total on that play. Just a, a dynamic individual. Looks like he's having a lot of fun out, out there, and I think the, the future is bright for Trey Ford and the Edmonton Elks. Three touchdowns for the Calgary Stampeders to close the gap and then eventually get the lead. One of the things that won't show up in the stats line, but a huge third-down gamble by the Stampeders where Mayer finds Reggie Bagleton down the field, and Bagleton makes a great catch. And not only do they get the first down, but they move on to the other side of midfield. Reggie Bagleton and Mark and Michelle really led the way for those receivers uh, for the for the Stampeders. Michelle was a perfect targeted four times, four catches for 95 yards. It was a real all-around offensive showing for the for the Stampeders. Whereas if you look on the other side, Trey Ford was such a huge part of of the offense of that team 14 for 23 for 137 yards and a touchdown passing and 11 carries for 135 yards rushing not a lot of opportunity for the other running backs when you've got your quarterback putting up those kinds of numbers and Kyron Moore of course with a perfect 158.3 passing stat as he went one for one on a 19 yard touchdown pass to Stephen Dunbar Again, ugh. <laughs> that stat has got to be fixed. He's trailing AJ Olette by seven yards in the uh, in the passing yard so far this season, though. Now for Jake Mayer, 27 to 34, 315. He threw an INT, no touchdown passes. What I felt about the Stampeders in this football game, and especially for Jake Mayer, was that Pat Demonico finally seems to be getting it that they've got to be allowed to take some chances and throw the ball deep. And to come back against the Elks. Edmonton had them. It looked like they were in control of that football game, and Calgary found a way to work their way down the field and get the scores, and Chris Jones, after the game, just looked lost as to what had happened out there. He conceded he's got a young team in Edmonton, but he felt that this was theirs, and it really bothered him. It got away. For Dave Dickinson, he was ecstatic. There was fight in his team. Bagleton had a 25-yard reception. Mark and Michelle's long was 52 yards. Kadeem Carey, the running back, had a 22-yard catch. Diedrich Mills had a 20-yard catch. Markeith Ambles had a 21-yard catch. So we have seen some changes in that Calgary offense, and they're starting to see the benefit of taking those chances. They were very conservative in the first half of the season. The record reflects that they were not putting up the points necessary maybe this is everybody clicking and everybody on the same page again for edmonton it's another lead that's blown they were up 28 to 13 going into the fourth quarter it's gotta hurt but again it's part of the learning curve when you win you do it because you've done x y and z properly in this case they got the x right they got the lead they got the y right they were leading going into the fourth quarter the Z was they didn't finish. I, I think that will come. It's it's amazing, even with this loss, the turnaround that we've seen in the Elks in the last four games of the season. They had a two-game win streak. They had a 22-point lead against Winnipeg. They had a big lead against Calgary. Just didn't quite finish those ones off, but they are learning. Maybe I was too quick early this season to dismiss the Chris Jones experiment, We'll, we'll see how the rest of the season goes and, and moving forward. But Trey Ford certainly looks like he is the future of this team right now. Third down. And as we return with the back-to-back games in a couple of cities in this weekend's action, it's going to be fascinating as playoff races heat up and teams that are on the outside want to be on the inside. And we've got two matchups that are going to speak to that. First, on Friday night, the Ottawa Red Blacks, who are coming off the bye. Teams are 11-3 and three coming off the bye this season. 
Red Blacks are three and a half point favorites over the Tiger Cats. Fair, not fair, home team bias. The Red Blacks are coming off a bye. They've also lost five straight games. I don't know where the Red Blacks stand. The luster has worn off of the Dustin Crum experience. Hamilton is a really tough one to figure out as well. They went into BC and beat up one of the best teams in the league and then got dominated by the Toronto Argonauts. This is a tough one. I'm going to go with the teams coming off the bye momentum in this one. I'm going to take the Red Blacks and they will cover the three and a half. Ottawa's thrown the fewest passes of distance, 20 yards, 30 yards plus. They are ninth of nine in the league. It's a surprising stat considering that Kahari Jones is their offensive coordinator. And you remember what magic he had with Vernon Adams Jr. in Montreal. The hesitation with Dustin Crum, I think, has got to be removed. They've got to open up this offense. They've got to let him throw it deep. If they can do that, then I think Ottawa is well justified as being the favorite. Hamilton's defense took a bit of a pounding by the Argonauts. They got exposed. But you learn from those mistakes. Scott Milanovic is their offensive coordinator. Hamilton is putting up more and more points every time out. Fun game to watch. I'm going to go with the home favorite coming off the bye. Ottawa has to get off of that losing streak. And if they want to be in the conversation in the playoffs in the East, has to be now. If they don't win here, they're not going to catch Hamilton. Three games on Saturday, starting out East in BMO, where... The Argonauts are hosting the Alouettes. The Argonauts, 10.5-point favorites. It's not a situation where Montreal can't do anything about this. It's a question of will they. And again, this is that situation where the Alouettes have not beat any of those top three teams in the league. That's going to continue this week. I like the Argonauts in this one. I'll take them to to cover. I think it's going to be a, a big win and a lot of points scored for the Argonauts. We'll see what Cody Fajardo can do with that offense for the Alouettes, but I I like the Argos big. The Argonauts beat the Alouettes in Montreal earlier this season, and they used the long ball to do it. Don't be surprised if Toronto does to Montreal what they just did to Hamilton, go after them early and build a big first quarter lead. I'd be hard-pressed to believe that Montreal can get inside that 10.5, especially if Cody Fajardo is making poor decisions like he did against British Columbia. The Argonauts will make it a long night for the Alouettes offense. The middle of the three games is Saskatchewan at Winnipeg in the Banjo Bowl. So named by Troy Westwood many a year ago. Winnipeg at home is nine and a half point favorites. Typically, Winnipeg wins this game going away. Is nine and a half not enough? Last time I picked Winnipeg to not cover the spread, they ended up beating the other team by 31, 30 points. So in this one, I like Winnipeg on the bounce back. Emotions are going to be high given what happened in that Labor Day weekend game. Of those two teams, Winnipeg plays a strong game but seems to have the discipline figured out. Saskatchewan has some discipline issues. We saw even if you look at the discrepancy in those major fouls in this previous game, it was three to seven and two of those three of the Bombers were offsetting meaning they took a rough rider with them and and those those penalties didn't actually count for any yards. I like the discipline factor that Mike O'Shea preaches and instills in that Blue Bombers team. I believe penalties are going to be an issue in this one, probably more so against the riders. That's one of the reasons that's going to help Winnipeg win that field position battle that they struggled with last week. I like Winnipeg to win this one in cover. Winnipeg, if you recall... Lost big to BC. Next time BC was in town, they blasted them with deep balls from the word go and beat them running away with the football game. This game, Winnipeg is likely to do the same thing. Buck Pierce is going to ask Claris to hit that deep ball and put the riders down early and get the crowd really into a frenzy and hopefully for the Winnipeg cause, keep the riders at bay because of that. Is Saskatchewan in that upper echelon group that they can go into Winnipeg and beat them? This is their opportunity to say, hey, we are. The One of the buzzwords you talked about, discipline. Saskatchewan, that's not their forte. They do take roughing penalties, and a lot of them. 
They have to be disciplined, especially in that hostile environment. If Winnipeg gets out to an early lead, this game is going to be a blowout. But if Saskatchewan is tight at halftime with them, there's a real chance that the Rough Riders could pull the upset. Having said all that, Winnipeg to cover. The final game, Calgary and Edmonton. It's almost a pick The Elks are one and a half point favorites at home. Huge game again. Playoff implications all over the place. If Calgary manages to win this game, Edmonton is almost out of the conversation in the playoffs. They would be. They'll have lost the season series to Calgary. They'll have fallen further behind the Rough Riders. They're in tough. I. Uh, it's amazing that we're at a point now where the Elks are favored at home after ending that losing streak. I don't pick the Elks at home often. I've been right more often than not. However, I'm going to shake things up this week. The Elks have a chance to split this home and home series. Trey Ford at home with the crowd fired up. The rejuvenated Edmonton Elks crowd behind him. I like Edmonton in this one. It's not very much of a spread, so I'm going to take them to uh, to cover it as well. Typically, this rematch is well attended in Edmonton. Calgary traditionally does not do well in the rematch in Edmonton. More often than not, this series will split in these two games. For the Stampeders, the one thing they cannot afford to do is get behind the way they did at home. If they're going into the second half or the fourth quarter trailing by 15, there is no way they're going to win that football game. I'm going to take the Elks at home. I think they're incentivized. And again, it's desperate times for them. They have to win this game to even be considered in the conversation for the playoffs in 2023. You're at two wins. You're just too far back. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again with the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.